So, love. In a sense, when we speak about love, uh, it's a very simple concept, very uncomplicated. It just means goodwill toward another, right? But in another, in another sense, this is completely incomprehensible to us. This love, uh, it is incomprehensible to be able to. Uh, Separate yourself from a will to serve the will of another. And this, because it is the very fundamental attribute of God's character. It is the essence of his mystery. It is the infinitely versatile virtue to which we attribute all things as the work of his hand. Right? And so, we say a lot about about love in in our daily lives to each other. And we hear a lot about love... From our culture, and our culture being what it is, can be very easy to become confused about the true nature of love, the actual reality of love. And so we find ourselves speaking in cliches, like repeating the things that we hear other people say and passing these things off as our own understanding. So what we need is we need to be reminded about love, where it comes from, and that our very existence cries out for the type of love that only God, through Jesus Christ, can give us. So that's all I intend to do this morning. Uh, And I hope that if if there's any instruction that happens, that it will come from the very uncompromising definition of God's love in context to our perception of it and our call to give it to each other, but certainly to God first. Right? And hopefully along the way we'll, uh, we'll shed some light on some of these cliches that we find ourselves using so much. So, uh, we begin with 1 John chapter 4, 7 and 8. Uh, it says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God because, oh, no, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So I thought it was important to point out at the very beginning that when John uh, defines love, he defines it not as an action or an emotion, but he defines it as an identity. Right? All right, what does he say? He says, first, that God is love, And next, he says that those who love are not those who perform good deeds or loving works, but those who know God. Love is an identity, right? And so we're going to spend all morning breaking down this identity of love. And we begin with what love is not. First of all, love is not an emotion, Right? Now, I understand that there are differences between the way that men and women, we experience the, uh, the emotions that we have, right? But there's no difference between the reality of the emotions that we all have, right? Emotions are involuntary responses to the way we cognitively experience the world. That means the way we think as we experience the world, right? If I think I have accomplished something, Therefore, I feel satisfied. I feel triumphant. When I discover 
that I have failed, I feel defeated. Right? Emotions are responses to the way our experience meets our expectations. Right? And when these harmonize well, we respond positively. When they harmonize poorly, we respond negatively. Either way, they are byproducts to the way the material world meets our mind. Right? If my love for you were based on an emotion, then it would be dependent upon you, your ability to manipulate circumstances in order to continually elicit a positive response in me. It would only last as long as you could please me. Right? So when I was thinking about this, it's important for me to consider all angles. And so I was thinking, you know, isn't it the point for us to please those that we love? Right? And then I thought, I realized that it was the opposite way that it should happen. Right? My love for you is not based on your ability to please me. My love for you is based on my desire to please you. Right? One is self-sacrificing. The other is self-mutilating. Right? If love were an emotion, then it would be the very epitome of selfishness, right? And it would be a destructive thing. Right? Now, there's one other topic I want to briefly uh, attend to while we're on the subject of emotion. There's been a curious phenomenon that I've witnessed or experienced with people when I hear people express their thoughts as if their thoughts themselves were feelings, right? Instead of, instead of saying, this is what I think... I hear people say, this is what I feel. And I want, to, I want to take a moment to explain why this is an inappropriate way to express yourself, right? Especially as Christians, all right? So emotions are involuntary responses, all right? This means you will not be held accountable for your emotions, right? We do not choose our emotions. That's why the Bible says, be angry, but do not sin, Right? You, there are many times that you can't, most of the times, you don't, you don't control what makes you angry. However, your thoughts are the way you choose to view the world. And many times the way that we establish these thoughts, the way that we choose them, is when we speak them. Right? And so there is certainly a way that we can describe the emotions that we have. Right? But even when we do this, we are still communicating thoughts that we think. Right? There is never, ever a time where an emotion is the same thing as a thought. The way we think produces our emotions, with no exceptions. Right? So, I think you have offended me, therefore I feel angry. Right? And though I may speak in anger, I'm still communicating thoughts that I choose to think. Right? I think you have rejected me, therefore I feel inadequate. I cannot think of a way out of this situation, therefore I feel despair, all right? The reason we call emotions responses is because they come after the thought, after the understanding, right? And this is the point. If emotions are involuntary responses to my circumstances, then when I communicate my thoughts as if they were emotions, then what I'm communicating is that my identity is defined by my circumstances, Right? Or like the waves that are tossed to and fro by the wind. Right? And uh, many times we don't take the words that we say casually very seriously. But I want to I show you what Jesus says. Right? Matthew 12, 36 and 37. He says, I tell you, in the day of judgment, 
a person will give account for every careless word that he speaks. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I want to be clear that Jesus is not saying that you are going to be condemned for a careless word. What he's doing is he's expounding on a, senti- on a statement that he's previously made. He said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? The words that we use are some of the most telling evidences of who we are and what we believe, right? And when we communicate our thoughts as involuntary responses, what we're communicating is that this is what I believe, this may be what I think, but this is not what I stand for. This is not what I'm willing to be held accountable for, all right? So I just want to address that you do not feel your thoughts. You think your thoughts, right? And you will be held accountable for your words. So if you're not thinking, then we probably should not be speaking. All right. Uh, Love is not an emotion, right? Secondly, love is not liking someone, right? When we like someone, this means we have a personal affection for them, right? The Greek word that we use for this is philio, right? This word denotes a fondness that is similar to preference, right? And from our favorite flavors of ice cream to pizza toppings, right, to the type of music that we like to listen to, to the type of books that we like to read. These are all products of arbitrary whims, right? This means that we make these distinctions based on the type and amount of pleasure that we get from experiencing them. And at the heart of these choices, we don't attach any sort of rational justification, right? It's like this. If I were to ask any one of you, what is your favorite flavor of Kool-Aid? You'd be like, cherry. I was like, all right, now tell me why that is your favorite flavor of Kool-Aid. I don't know, man, that's just what I like. That's who I am. You cannot answer that question because you do not choose your preferences, right? They're like emotions. They're responses, right? Our affections are the way our mind and our body naturally responds to our experience, is what stimulates us, right? To be stimulated is to cause excitement and pleasure. And when we are stimulated, we're more likely to take an active role in our environment, our circumstances, and our relationships, certainly. But the reason we define this word filio as friend is because it signifies a relationship that is built around these common interests or these common preferences, right? You like punk rock music? I like punk rock music. Let's get together and listen to some music, right? Let's go to some shows. Hey, we got a lot in common, right? We agree about a lot of stuff, right? The things that we don't agree about, we really like talking about. This is human affection. This is filio, right? Human affection is the degree to which an object or a person stimulates pleasure in our lives, naturally arousing us to a greater mode of interaction with our environment, okay? Filio can coexist with love, but filio is not the same thing as love, all right? Godly love, or the love that he commands us to have for each other, the love that he says that he has for us, is this big word we're all familiar with, the word agape, right? And agape love is a mystery to mankind, all right? The best way I can explain it 
is to say that it is the presence of goodwill in the absence of self-interest. All right? Uh, in other words, it is the unconditional interest in another's well-being that exists completely apart from my affections, my emotions, and my needs. All right? All right. And when I direct this goodwill towards another person, I use the word agapao, right? Agape is the noun. Agapao is the transitive verb. I am applying it to another person, right? When it says, beloved, let us love one another, it is saying agapao. Agapao is the intentional direction of the will to serve the well-being of another without considering myself, whether for good or bad, right? And the only way to differentiate between filio and agapao is not, uh, is not dependent on the presence of suffering. It's not dependent on the presence of pleasure or even the action that we choose to employ when we interact with each other. All right? The only way you differentiate between these two is in the direction of the will. All right? And so in order to learn about love, since love is dependent upon the will... We must talk about what it means to have a will and why we have it, all right? So, we're talking about a will. We're talking about freedom, right? Uh, The human idea of freedom comes from our concept of having a free will, right? The freedom to choose in our lives, right? But a will, by nature of itself, is free, right? When we use the term free will, we're being redundant, all right, there's no such thing as a will that is not free. All right, now the Bible certainly talks about predestination. It talks about election, and these are realities, but these are doctrines concerning God's will and not the will he has given us to act with, to be responsible for, right? So what does it mean to have a free will? Well, uh, when we say that we have a free will, when we're describing what we're free from, technically we are free from life itself, right? All creatures on the earth have been given, built into them, the knowledge of survival, right? The principles of survival, and this is what we call our instinct, and we all have it, right? The only difference between men and animals is that animals are completely governed by these instincts, and men are not, okay? Animals perform The principles of instincts flawlessly because they're not free to deny them, right? There's no answer to the question of why an animal does what it does that is not also the same answer to what kind of animal it is, right? For instance, we learned about the bees at the garden, right? We learned that there's a bee called a leafcutter bee, and this bee cuts little circles out of flowers, flower petals and leaves, and they use them for doors for the nest to protect their young. Right? And I thought this was fantastic when I learned this. Right? This is so, it was wonderful, right? But when I ask why a bee does this, the answer is never that the, belie- that the bees collectively got together and they all decided that flower petals were the best substance to use for their nests. Right? That's not the answer. The answer is that it is a leafcutter bee, and that's what leafcutter bees do. That's how they function. Right? And so I never expect to walk up to the bee box in the garden and see that one of the de- bees has upgraded to a tiny little screen door. 
because instinct defines the identity of an animal, right? That's the point. Okay, so humans are different, right? Humans are not governed by their instincts. Though we still have instincts, we are free to choose to answer them or not, right? We get to choose how we live. We get to answer the what, the where, the when. We even get to choose if we live, right? Genesis 1.28 said that God gave mankind dominion over all creation, and that dominion extends even to our own lives. Mankind has the ability to choose life in a way that all other creatures do not, right? And because of this freedom, we have the ability to end our lives if we choose. But this is exactly the point, right? By being free from the type of authority that life has over all of the creatures, we have that same type of authority over our own lives. And therefore, man does not live because he has to. Man lives because he wants to, right? It is what we call our will to live, right? Animal instinct, the substance of animal, animal life is its instinct, right? The substance of human life is desire, right? Everything in a man's life is a product of his desires, all right? It is how we shape our lives. The question for us, what do we need, becomes what do we want? I need to eat. Do I want to eat fish or fruit, right? I need to rest. Do I want to rest now or do I want to rest later? When I rest, do I want to rest in a chair that rocks back and forth or one that flips out you know, so I can, eat, I can take a nap in the same place that I eat my lunch, right? We fly in airplanes and we work in office buildings 500 stories off the ground. Instinct teaches a man how to sustain his life. Desire teaches a man how to enjoy his life, all right? Animals are born with instinct, and they have to serve life. But man is born with desire, and he must choose life, right? And when a man is able to live according to his desires, then he lives a life that becomes worth living, all right? And this is the key. When we speak of life being worth living, we are speaking of life having value, all right? By giving us free will to live according to our desires, God has made man able to attach value to life by being able to pursue what makes his life worth living. And so every choice a man makes is an expression of what he values. That's why we call the way we make choices our values. Our choices reflect our desires, and our desires reflect the things in life that we consider to be the most valuable, all right? Just as instinct defines the identity of an animal, a man's identity is defined by what he values, all right? Or what he pursues with the direction of his will. Now, there are two ways for a man to perceive value in this world, all right? One is called sensual value. The other is called rational value. All right, now this is the difference. If, when I am hungry, I choose to eat ice cream, 
And the value I'm pursuing is in the experience of eating the ice cream, the act of eating it, right? And the object of my value is the ice cream itself. And the reason I desire it is because of the pleasure involved in eating it, right? In this sense, my body becomes subject, uh, or I'm sorry, my will becomes subject to the desires of my body to fulfill the pleasure of what my body prefers, This is why we call it sensual value. It is sense-oriented. It is sense-determined, right? My body makes the decision, and my will conforms to this decision. If, when I am hungry, I choose to eat a spinach salad with boiled eggs and vinegar dressing, then what the value that I am pursuing is not in the experience, but in what the experience produces, right? The experience produces health, and if I continue to fill my desires in this way, I will become healthy, right? This is rational value because my body is subject to the purpose of my will, right? I choose beforehand to value health, and then I pursue the experiences that will make me healthy, right? And my actions produce the value that I pursue, Right? The value of the ice cream is in the ice cream itself. Right? So that means that the ice cream, when the, the value is gone, when the ice cream is gone. Or when the moment passes. All right? In this sense, uh, this kind of value is passing away. Because I'm consuming it with my actions. Right? The value of the spinach salad is not in the salad itself. It is in the purpose that I choose to serve, and when I choose to serve a valuable purpose, my actions produce the value that I pursue, right? I become the value of health. The value is reflected in my identity, right? This is what it means to act with the direction of the will. It means to act with purpose, right? And when I allow my body to determine the way that I fill my desires, I'm no longer acting with the purpose of my will because I'm acting according to the demands of my physical cravings. And when the purpose of my will is dominated by my physical cravings, then I become a slave to the demands of my existence. And no value is possible to me because I'm not acting according to my desires, but I am acting according to my need. All right? This is what we mean when we say we are slaves to the flesh. All right? we, are, it is, we have the responsibility to serve the needs of our existence. And since we are always consuming this type of value with our action, the need always returns, and therefore the value that we live for is continually passing away. Right? It is disappearing And the value of our identity, or identity reflects a value that is disappearing. Alright? The only way that I can live in freedom, the only way that I can live according to my free will, is if I live with the expectation of my needs to already be provided for. Alright? This is why we call it free will. I am free from the obligation to serve my own existence so that I may be free to use my existence to live for a higher purpose, right? By being freed from my needs, I am freed to live according to my desires. And when I live according to my desires, I live according to what has value. 
And when I live according to what has value, that value is reflected in my identity, and I become someone who is valuable. This is what John means in chapter 2, verse 15, when he says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, it is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of the Father lives forever. It is only in God's will that we are able to live according to what has value and be valuable because the only way we can abandon our own self-interest is if we trust Him to serve our interests. Right? Now check this out. All right. To be valuable means to have purpose. All right? These are synonymous terms, right? And to have purpose, for anything to have purpose, it has two requirements it must fulfill, right? The first requirement, anything that has purpose must serve the purpose, uh, a purpose of something other than itself, all right? When I buy a clock from the store, I use this clock to measure time. It becomes valuable to me as it serves a purpose for me. Right? It is impossible for anything to have purpose by serving its own purpose. All right? Can I pour water from a pitcher out of the pitcher back into the pitcher that I'm pouring from? No. Neither is it possible for anything to have purpose by serving its own purpose. When I buy the clock from the store and it functions properly, but nobody uses it, then it may be performing a function, but it is certainly not serving a purpose. Right? What do we call the things that we have lying around our house right? that nobody uses for anything? We call it junk, and we wish to get rid of them. Right? Second condition for something to have purpose. Anything that has purpose must have design. Right? The clock can only measure time because it was designed to function this way. And it finds value by serving the purpose for which it was prepared. All right? Everything that has purpose has been given purpose from a greater purpose so that it may in turn use its purpose to serve the purpose of another. All right? The clock is prepared to have value by being designed to serve a purpose. And it finds its value when it serves the purpose of another. Up and out. Right? If the clock breaks, and I use it in my living room for some sort of fancy decoration, then it may not be serving the purpose of its original design, but it retains value by serving the purpose of my design. Since I am greater than the clock... I can give value to the clock by giving it purpose even though it may be broken. Right? It's translating, I hope. Uh, Our free will is not given to us so that we may indulge our heart's desire. Right? Free will was given to us so that through desire we might be able to perceive life to have value. 
And when we serve God as the object of our desire, the ordainer of value, the object of our value, right, then his purpose becomes our purpose, and his value is reflected in our identity. And in that is what John means when he says, those who love have been born of God and know God because God is love. Right? Freedom was given to us so that we may, through desire and not need, participate in God's value and thus experience God's joy. And this is why love is not uh, an action. It's not an emotion. It is not an affection. These are all products of our identity. They are products of our desire. Love is only the identity of the one who uses their free will to freely subject themselves to God's will so that as love pours out of him, so love pours out of us. Right? And as love defines our identity, it, it ceases to be associated with the products of our desire and becomes the source of our desire. It's like pouring the water from the pitcher. You can't pour it out and back in at the same time. Right? So agape love only flows one way. Right? And it cannot serve its own desires for the nature of itself because it cannot see its own desires. Right? Therefore, if love is to be the product or the source of your desire, then God must be the source of your provision. Right? It is up and out. Your desires were meant to point two ways. Up and out. That's why, the, uh, that's why the two greatest commands are love God and love your neighbor so that the will of God may flow through you like an electrical current. All right? If any of these directions are turned back inward, then you become powerless and it is impossible for you to give love. And let me tell you, if you do not give love, then it is impossible for you to receive love. All right, this, is, this does not mean that others will not love you. It means that you cannot benefit from a value to which you are ignorant. Right? In order to know value, you must know God. The value that we can conceive of with our imprisoned minds is nothing compared to the value that God retains in his identity. It's like if I tried to go to McDonald's to buy food with euros. Right? They wouldn't accept my euros. They wouldn't give me my food because they don't trade with them. Therefore, they have no value to them. Love is the same way. In order to benefit from it, in order to desire it, you have to trade with it. All right? The problem is, is that uh, all of our identities have been corrupted by sin. Right? None of us trade with love anymore. We are like throwing a cell phone into the pool. Right? We short-circuit. Right? We have all disassociated ourselves with the will of God and therefore disassociated ourselves with the ability to serve a purpose and to have value. Right? And this, this is what I'm doing right here is the picture of what Solomon is lamenting when he says, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be numbered. Right? What is lacking is not physical, it is spiritual. You have a spiritual need for love because you have a physical purpose to give love. And the reason love is so incomprehensible to mankind is because human love is a self-refuting concept. It's contradictory. 
All right? If agape love is the presence of goodwill in the absence of self-interest, and I serve no higher will than my own, then even the good deeds that I do are a product of selfishness by being a product of serving my own will. Right? How can I desire to be unselfish, or how can I express unselfishness when the very desire to be unselfish is a first an act of serving my own desire? Right? How can love for each other be called love and value for each other be called value if it never comes from what we claim for ourselves first? Right? Man is constitutionally, primarily at his heart, incapable of giving agape love because there's no motivation in a man that does not first serve his own interests. Like, this is what we mean when we say we are broken, right? We've become imprisoned by the demands of our existence, and therefore we have become incapable of serving a purpose other than our own, right? And since the value we are living for is continually passing away, we're always compensating for the notion that we are worthless, right? That is why man finds his value He finds his purpose no longer in the arrogant answer to the command to love one another, right? This is self-promoting, right? Man finds his value, he finds his purpose in saying yes to the lordship of Jesus Christ, who God sent to make all the crooked places straight again, right? And so we have in Isaiah 40, Verse 4, it says, every mountain will be brought low, every valley will be lifted up, the crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth, right? In rejecting the will of God, we've become unconcerned with anyone but ourselves, and therefore we cannot discover the will of God because we are imprisoned by our own subjective perception, Right? This is what Jesus means when he says anyone who sins is a slave to sin. In order for us to free ourselves, we must be reconciled to God. But we, cannot, but we are slaves to us, ourselves, therefore we cannot uh, desire God. We will never go looking for God. And that is why God had to come looking for us. Right? And then when he did... He put the words of Isaiah into Jesus' mouth. He said, I have come to proclaim liberty to the captives and to all who are in prison that they might be made free. Right? The love that you desire to give, right? the love that you desire to live for, the love that you desire to receive is found wholly in the person of Jesus Christ and not in you. You have no ability to do it, right? All right. Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. This means that he is the knowledge that we have lost by becoming the payment for our destroying what was so infinitely valuable, And this is what John means when he says, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loves us 
And he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. This is agape love revealed. This is why it had to be revealed to us, because we can't do it. This is love. The presence of goodwill and the absence of self-interest. Romans 5.10, it says, For when we were God's enemies, he reconciled us to him through the death of his son. How will he not also freely give us all things? Who have sinned so greatly against God. Right? If we could comprehend the love of God, then we would not question his right to crush us for our sin. Sin is the last act of the free will to sell yourself into slavery for all that God gave you free will to enjoy. And if it was only our experience that we were rejecting, then the act would be less awful. But it is not the experience. It is the very substance of the identity of God and his love, which he is, not just does, when we look up to the sky and we say, you are the worthless one, not us. But God takes love to a greater level. Right? He puts aside his right to crush us for the offense to which we are all guilty. He puts aside his rights. He puts aside his reputation. He puts aside his liberties and his freedom. And he imprisons himself in the sinful man, into the frame of sinful man, so that he may come to us and say in words that we can understand that I created you for love, I created you with love, and though you have rejected me, I'm going to show you that my love never fails. Right? This is love that God put aside his infinitely valuable self. He put aside all that he was worth. And he came out of goodwill toward mankind to sacrifice that infinitely valuable self in mankind's time of greatest need. So I want you to think about this. You will never be anything but a slave in this world because of your sin. All right? Because of what God has done, Through Jesus Christ, he has given you the opportunity to make one more choice. And it's the only one you'll be able to make. And it's the last one you will make. Either live in bondage to sin, a slave to destruction, a consumer of God's value. Or turn from it all and be a, a bondservant to Jesus Christ. And bondservant means slave. It is only in obedience to Jesus Christ that our love for each other can be called love. Because it's only when we are found to be obeying him that we are not found to be serving ourselves. And Jesus said, I gave you an example so that you may also do just as I have done for you. So we are to put aside our rights. Put aside our reputation, put aside our liberties, put aside our affections, put aside our freedoms, 
and sacrifice ourselves for the sake of one another as Jesus Christ, our Lord, has sacrificed himself for you. He said, a new commandment I give you to love one another, not as you would love yourself anymore, because that is self-promoting. He said, I tell you to love one another as I have loved you. And that's why John finds it legitimate to say that he has given himself for us. He's laid down himself for us so that we should too go lay down our lives for the brothers. Jesus is saying, just in case you missed the message of love, and I'm going to give you a picture that you will never forget. And so the question, what will Jesus do, is is not the question we ask. It is what has Jesus already done? The picture of the cross of Jesus Christ is not only a picture of our salvation. It is the picture of the last lesson that Jesus would ever teach all those who would call upon his name for the salvation he died for, that when he commanded them to carry their cross, they might know to what end they were to do so. To love as Jesus Christ has loved. To Give as Jesus Christ has given. To die as Jesus Christ has died. Every day for every man, friend or enemy. Not reserving rights or reputation or self. Because when you die, there is no more self. But only to sacrifice yourself. For the way Jesus Christ has so greatly sacrificed for us. So I want to finish. Um, I, want, I want to read to you a passage that I have to read to myself every now and then to remind myself of the profundity of the call that we have been called to love like Jesus' love, which is to die as he has died. For he grew up before him like a young plant, And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I read that. I think of the words that Jesus said at the end of the parable of the Good Samaritan. He told them what love is and he said, go and do likewise. This is what Jesus has done. Now go and do likewise for every man, friend or enemy, without right or reputation 
for yourself. All right, let's pray. Holy Lord, Father, I thank you for the love that you have given us, the truth that you have established in your Son, Jesus Christ. I thank you that all our fears are put to rest in obedience to Jesus Christ. I, I thank you that all our sins are put aside for the sake of Jesus Christ. And in this we may know love, the love that we have forgotten. Lord, and I pray that it would be the instruction of your son Jesus Christ in this moment and every day forward to teach us of the love that he gives, Lord, and the love that you have made so abundantly available through the grace and the truth that is in Jesus Christ alone. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move in our hearts in the direction that you would call us. Lord, in Jesus Christ's name and for his infinite glory, amen.